episode of EdTech Hour is brought to you by the Educational Psychology Technology Program at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. The Chicago School's mission is integrating the values of education, innovation, service, and community. The Chicago School provides students innovative and practitioner-based learning experiences in which they're able to positively impact others around the world and address issues faced by underserved populations. Through collaboration of university administration, faculty, and students, the EdTech Hour was created in order to pursue our vision of innovation and global outreach. This monthly podcast series will include thought leaders from around the world who will discuss relevant issues centered not only on technology, but also the impact of technology on humanity. Speakers will provide listeners with stories of how they have impacted learners, employees, and communities through the pursuit of understanding how individuals learn and use technology to improve performance. This show provides a global medium to share and promote various issues and developments and learning and how professionals are utilizing technology. By listening to this show, I hope that you are able to develop a unique insight into how you can incorporate similar topics and trends into your own professional settings. I look forward to learning more about our topic with you throughout this episode. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Carolyn. Um, I'm super excited to interview you today. I'm excited to see you again um, after, I believe, almost a year and a half of when I had the opportunity to visit uh, with you in South Africa. So at this time, I want to introduce you to our listeners. Um, With us today, we have Miss Carolyn Burns, who is uh, speaking to us from South Africa. And at this time, what I would like to do is to allow you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your life's work, and what your focus has been with your organization. Oh, certainly. Well, it's delightful to see you again. And I remember really fondly your group coming out here to South Africa and all the talent and skill that you brought to Sunspray Primary School and shared with the educators had such a huge impact. Uh, In fact, both the groups that Dr. Torres and Dr. Giddy have brought out from the Chicago School have been magnificent. And so we really, really have missed groups since then because of COVID. But I realize that we will talk about that a bit later. So I am a 68-year-old born and raised South African. And I'm a child of apartheid, born in 1952. So just a few years after the start of apartheid, um, which meant that I had a privilege just because I'm a white person. So I know that all the listeners will know about apartheid. So it was such a massive system of discrimination and censorship and secrets. There were no family discussions about apartheid and its impact in my home or any political discussions when I was growing up. And I was a very unconscious person, just totally absorbed with myself um, and my own well-being. So yeah, and so that's pretty well how I walked through life for the first 32 years of my of my life until I went over to Canada. So I've managed to 
go to a good school because all the government schools were uh, for white children and all the schools for black children were impoverished schools like Slunksbury Primary where you and your group uh, came uh, to offer, you know, all of your amazing uh, work and support for the teachers. And then they were divided into different race groups. So for the mixed race people and uh, for the people of Indian origin, so it was very complex. And then I went into nursing school. I did my general nursing training, became an RN. And then I, I, cause I grew up in KwaZulu-Natal where you visited. Then I went to Cape Town to do my midwifery training and then do my pediatric nursing specialty. And that's where I stayed in Cape Town for 10 years. And then ultimately, yeah, I've had a, a, a life full of interesting opportunities, but uh, that's a whole subject on its own. So ultimately this Canadian came into my life and I eventually chose to marry him and move to Canada. So that's when I was 32, that was in 1984. And so I left South Africa a couple of years before everything blew up into the time of violence. Um, and I mean, it, you know, it was intense enough before that. So I married uh, Doug and moved over to the West Coast. I was in Vancouver and then ultimately uh, left him to be on my own and moved to Victoria, um, where I lived for 25 years. Somewhere along the line, when I was 36, I met uh, the most wonderful man. I was, had been in, in therapy for a, a long, long time, uh, since I was about 32. I had a wonderful therapist and I met this man and I'll just give you a little piece about this because it's really relevant. He is a West Indian man, which means that he's a person of color, a tall, handsome man who, um, it was a practicing specialist um, on Vancouver Island. And I remember I was in, in therapy with the wonderful Ben, who, you know, was an uh, ex-New Yorker and a Jewish man. And I mentioned that as huge relevance for how he responded to me and, you know, my, my statements. You know, Ben had said to me, you know, why don't you, is Alan available? And I said, I don't know. And Ben said, we'll find out. And I said, well, what do you mean find out? And so he said, well, find out. And I said, no, I can't do that. And he said, why, why not? And I said, because he's not white. And so that led to a massive discussion about, you know, my internalized racism, whether you know, where it belonged, how much of it was mine, how much of it was the country, my environment, my family of origin, my upbringing. And so that's really where, you know, my deep personal journey commenced. And most particularly with this outstanding man who um, was, who's just has been and always will be, I think the most impactful person in my life, 
you know, somebody who is totally non-judgmental, someone through whom I learned my social conscience because, you know, I have come to believe that we're all born with everything we require. Just a lot of it is dormant and buried. And, you know, we either do, are able to, are willing to, I don't know, you know, have the courage to have the um, the, the catalyst in our life and our lives to pursue. And, 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 you know, my pursuit has been to become as authentic as possible before I die. And so my existential angst has developed around being curious about why I was, why I'm a white girl who was born in South Africa. You know, why wasn't I born in the, you know, in the heart of uh, whiteness, you know, maybe in Europe? Why wasn't I born as a black girl, you know, in a refugee camp? You know, why? And it, so it's, it became in the presence of Alan very significant to me that I was born in South Africa during apartheid. And um, because I am, I think, you know, it's, it's what resonates the most deeply with me and, you know, my soul, you know, whatever that might be, is that I am half Jewish on my dad's side. So my dad's parents, my dad is a first generation South African. His uh, parents were um, Eastern European Jews. Original name was Bernstein and they fled for whatever the reasons and secrecy behind that. But that's the part that I resonate with most. And, you know, and um, an atonement and making a difference and that deep sense of responsibility and curiosity and guilt about life and why are we here and it can't just be about me and fun and um, being safe and having you know a good and profitable time so um, I had said to Alan after I so I went to graduate school at the Leadership Institute of Seattle, uh, which was absorbed into Saybrook University, which is part of the TCS education system. And that was a life-changing event for me. So I was 36, I think, to your program, master MA in systems counseling, um, was a deeply, uh, introspective program, challenging program, you know, still the days of group work and, you know, that confrontation, very, very rich. Also, you know, emotionally quite painful. And I'm really, really filled with gratitude for that program because that was a life-changing event. And then I remember at some point afterwards saying to Alan, I, uh, I think I want to go up north and work with the Indigenous Canadians, because I have a deep, like a deep attraction to Indigenous people, you know, from my, my heart. And, you know, so he looked at me and said, those aren't your people. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they're not your people. Your people are in South Africa. And I was stunned and shocked. And I said, well, I'm never going back there. And he said, well, those are your people. And then, you know, the magic of how the universe, source, God, 
you know, whatever starts to work and germinate. And, um, and even though I come from a sec secular perspective, you know, things were really ruminating. And yes, the deep call was to return here and to Peter Maritzburg and to work in the community where in this house where I was born and raised, to which I've returned, my nanny came from, our housekeeper came from, Slungsbreit, the community where you all were at the school. And so that was the poll, that's what made sense to me. And so I did go about looking in uh, to returning uh, to South Africa. I have dual citizenship. And so, yes, and so that's what I did. That's what I did. And it's been, it's, 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 it's an integral, definitely an integral part of my personal freedom, my personal healing, my personal uh, liberation is the part that's all about me and, you know, my years of privilege um, as a white girl. And also, uh, you know, obviously giving back to the community, but it's also drawn in my Canadian friends in Victoria, on the West Coast, some American friends, because I studied in Seattle, um, who really had not much knowledge about South Africa, the dynamics, the complexities, the horror, the trauma, you know, and folks have had a chance to donate and contribute, you know, in their own way, which I know we'll get to talk about. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's given me that opportunity. I've been back, it's my 13th year now, I think, my 13th year. It gave me an opportunity to return and care for my mom who passed away, who died in 2019 in April you know, who, who I'd promised would never go into a home. I'd promised her that she would die in this house where my brother and I were born and raised and in her, you know, with her exquisite garden surrounding her and with all my issues around, you know, most of us have a variety of issues around our family of origin and parents. I never ever dreamt that I would return to Peter Maritzburg in particular and live with my mom. So that was also, you know, it's been a massive growth point as well. And I'm really, really grateful for all the training, the learning, the intrapersonal and interpersonal growth I experienced uh, through graduate school. Uh, to bring me to this point. So it's such a beautiful um, life experience that you shared. And it, it brings a couple of questions to mind. You know, did you ever, you know, when you came back, or as you were experiencing um, your feelings and, and, and that you explained, like realizing, oh, my goodness, you know, my upbringing and how different it was, and how normal it probably felt to you at the time. Did you ever come back and ask your parents about that? Was there ever conversations with your, you know, family, um, either your, 
your immediate family or extended family about that? Did that ever come up once you started that self-discovery process? It was complicated is the one word for it. And intense is the, is the other word because, you know, the first encounter, major encounter was disclosing to my parents that I was in a relationship with Alan, a romantic relationship. I remember at the time I said to my therapist, Ben, uh, I'll be disowned from the family. And he said to me, but you live in Canada, you're halfway around the world. So that's how deeply rooted that was. And uh, my, my mom was at the time, so it was a lot, you know, way before I returned to South Africa was distraught, completely distraught that I, you know, was um, romantically involved uh, and committed to a man of color. My dad was politically correct and was very accepting. And so the conversation started then. And I, you know, I really appreciated and was amazed um, that my parents actually were very organic about that process of meeting Alan in Canada when they came over, of loving him. Uh, you know, why not? He's completely adorable. And when we both came out to South Africa on numerous occasions, you know, because, you know, living on, I mean, living in Canada for so many, so many years, you know, I, I forgot that I was white. I, you know, forgot that Alan was a person of color. It was just, you know, we were a couple in love and a couple for 17 years. Uh, you know, we're still superb friends. But that when we came out here, I remember it was one evening, we were all, um, the four of us, my mom, dad, Alan, and myself were out in a restaurant eating. And it suddenly dawned on me that my parents had been completely comfortable from the moment we had set foot in South Africa. They had suggested and taken us out to a restaurant, which was of course totally white, you know, because it was really early days and people of color, you know, were still keeping very much to their own communities. So everyone in the restaurant was white. And so, you know, then I kind of noted with great curiosity and actually a growing respect for my parents, you know, and also their deep ignorance and, you know, some comments that were made after Alan left that, you know, just displayed their... You know, I mean, I have to, it's just a ridiculous word to use. Like they're um, just ignorant, you know, ignorant, like lack of knowledge. I, you know, I, I'm so struggling to say innocent because it can't be. Yes. And so, but my, and my dad passed, my dad died in 2000 uh, when I was completing graduate school. And so I had returned a few times during his year of decline. And uh, we did. We had numerous conversations. You know, he had said to me not to return. Um, because he was ailing, I didn't confront him directly. 
And I had a deep respect for my father because my father had worked as a health inspector, you know, right through the communities and the rural areas. He was a fluent Isizulu speaker, you know, with just the most um, self-taught. He spoke all languages, you know, the three languages in South Africa, not all the indigenous languages. And, you know, and he, um, he was deeply respectful of the Zulu culture. I, you know, and my dad and I spoke a lot about uh, being Jewish. And um, he felt safe to talk with me about that, which he, he never did with my brother. My older brother didn't show any interest. And so that was our conversation. Um, and that was full of pain. And my dad spoke about his childhood growing up in poverty here in South Africa during the depression and um, the Jewish struggles because the Jews, you know, in white South Africa were, you know, it was, it was really the, the white English speaking South Africans who thought they, so they were the most superior, you know, so there were layers of being so-called white as well. So hugely complex. My, my mom, uh, over the years of my being back here, spoke more and more, uh, very heated discussions. My mom tried really, really hard in my presence. So she had, you know, that persona in my presence. And then I knew behind my back, you know, when she couldn't keep the lid on anymore, uh, she just blew. And, you know, a dear... Uh, Gloria, who uh, was and is um, returned after COVID as uh, my housekeeper here, so I could return to work and she could look after the dogs and look after the house because in South Africa, you don't leave a house unattended because of the high rate of crime, burglaries. She and Gloria became great friends and, you know, they would also have words with each other so, you know, so my, 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 my mom really tried and, you know, and I um, really challenged everybody. I remember through, you know, through graduate school as well and subsequently anyone who said, oh, you know, you can't teach old dogs new tricks or um, leopards don't change their spots because I watched my parents really try hard and change, but not my brother. So I had some really you know, um, major, major confrontations with my brother, who uh, I know won't be listening to this podcast. So, you know, I would, even if he was, is in the right place. Sorry, whoever might be listening to this. He's in Australia uh, in a very white environment. Um, my, my brother is, yeah, is, uh, has just a tremendous amount of judgment and discrimination. You know, as is prevalent in South Africa, you know, I won't, I mean, there are plenty of, of white folks who, who, you know, are transformed and were completely, you know, liberal during the apartheid years um, and, you know, fought the struggle. There are many now, you know, who think, who would say they're not racist, you know, think that they're um just, you know, really accepting, but they're not. 
And, you know, so, and, and a lot of my family is like that, as lovely as they are, you know, so, you know, so that, you know, and when there are conversations around, you know, a tea table or a lunch table, or I'm sitting in a coffee shop and, you know, I hear the table next door that, you know, white people are talking about the problems with their maid or derogatory comments about, you know, the panhandlers in the street, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's clear to me, you know, it's, I mean, first of all, why do you, why does that need to be part of your tea conversation? And then, you know, what was really clear to me was um, during that conversation, you know, when my, my, my aunt was actually making, complaining about her housekeeper and I spoke up. Um, and there was deathly silence. Um, and I did, you know, in another family context as, as well before I left Canada. And so, and so people, you know, the family refer to me as an outsider, you know, it's like, you know, so when I'm around, uh, which I'm not much at all since my mom died, uh, I'm far, far removed because I have a I have a choice as lovely as they are. But I'm just I'm not interested in being in that environment. It's um, and they're all different when I'm around, right? There's it's quiet, you know. It's a little bit tense um, because I've also spoken up about gender issues because it's a very patriarchal uh, society out here across you know the spectrum of race groups. So, uh, yeah, and I, you know, I remember my, my other cousin now late, you know, saying to her, her husband, you know, don't say those things in front of her. She's, she's, she's from overseas. And I thought, wow. And so, you know, to experience myself as a hybrid, like I, I really don't belong here and, you know, obviously don't belong in Canada anymore. Um, but I straddle both places, which is, you know, I just absorb as an advantage. And, uh, you know, my, my, you know, my B and, and the, for the locals to really see and experience me as a Canadian, you know, and, and so, um, you know, so within the, the song spread within, you know, the black or communities of color, you know, and people have told me without, thinking that they forget I'm white and you know I'm just deeply grateful I mean that's the best compliment I could ever receive um right. so yeah so wow it's fascinating it's it really is fascinating, fascinating. It, is that you know a big reason you said I could never imagine myself back here and it was just because you yeah. knew that you were no longer going to be seen as the same person Yes. And, you know, the West Coast of Canada, especially Vancouver Island, is very white, you know, and, you know, and the, the I mean, there are Indigenous Canadians, but they're, you know, very much um, within their communities and, uh, you know, even, you know, yeah, and they're, you know, the, the racism in Canada is uh, subtle. It's there. And it's subtle. And, uh, you know, I remember I had a, um, a, a couple of clients when I was in Victoria counseling. 
who were former South Africans uh, of East Indian origin. And they, ha- they were living in Victoria and they'd immigrated. And uh, they said to me, just a lovely, lovely couple, really enjoyed them. Uh, they said to me, we actually felt more comfortable in South Africa because the racism, we knew that we, we knew the rules. We knew the rules, it was obvious, but in Canada, it is um, so subtle. We don't know the rules. We, um, you know, it's like trying to catch a fish, right? So um, to sort of can't hold onto it, you can't, you know, it's like, what do you say? And then folks are outraged, you know, over there, you know, should anything be said about, you know, inappropriate comments. So, so yeah, so it's a, yeah, and so you know, so so you know, who knows what 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 life brings? You know, I, I am back home. You know, like my my mom who only retired at eighty and she died at ninety two, and that was more because her body couldn't carry her anymore. But I, you know, I'll 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 work on and on. So I have no idea where, you know, my life will take me, but it definitely will not take me to a white environment. So should I return to Canada or the U.S.? Who knows? Because uh, I have a lot of, you know, uh, uh, heart and connections in the U.S. It, 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 it won't be, uh, it'll, it'll be a really mixed community. That I know yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's so powerful what your client said, because it is true. I mean, I, it, you, you know, or you, you've probably seen in the news, everything that happens yes. in America. And it's, oh, yes, it is. So I feel it's out, you know, we're, we're in a transition period right now, I feel as um, an American community as an American culture. And I grew up feeling that way. You know, I, grew up feeling like I really don't know if the person in front of me is being authentic and what's going to happen when I turn my back. Right. Right. Um, And it's uncomfortable because it is so subtle. And, and now it's not so subtle because now everything is recorded. Everything is documented. Um, And so I think this is, this is when this, the not so subtle becomes more in your face and people are having to confront themselves um, as they see it being played out in the news or in, in social media. Yeah. So it's an, it's an incredible, yeah. insightful e- experience that they shared with you. Uh, I didn't consider it that yes. way. Absolutely. And, and, you know, ultimately the, 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 the wife, so I, I won't mention names because I might well send her this recording uh, she was studying for her master's degree at the University of Victoria. In um, So she is a, a counselor. And her husband, unfortunately, passed on. Um, and she chose to go up north. And she's up in the Arctic, oh, working wow. with the Inuit. And, that's, and she says she, ha- she feels so at home that the community has, right from the beginning adopted her as one of theirs they looked at her and said you look like us you know and of course because she's so far north although she you know she was pale but she's lost right she's become even paler 
But however, when she first went, uh, they said to her, you're one of us. And uh, she absolutely loves it up there in the north. So, you know, isn't that fascinating? And so she's found her true home. Yes. Yes. Yes, That's so powerful. Yeah. Um, What a beautiful story. So how did this, I mean, you, you've talked to us about your trajectory, your, your transformation, your personal transformation, and how you've experienced other people transform and find their passions in their lives. How did that transition to your work, specifically the work you started doing with the Slang Spreet community? So you talked about why you chose it. Um, you had deep personal connections to the community. Yes. Um, but what was your trajectory to taking the steps that you took? And where are you now with okay. the work you're doing with them? Okay, wonderful. So because I'd spent 25 years in North America, you know, and I had a master's degree, I thought that I had to come out here with a plan and an intellectual program. And you understand that. And I think all your listeners will. So I came out here and I thought, okay, I would like to start an entry-level basic counseling college, like a little college in the community and train counselors from the community. So from the black community, the Zulu community uh, to return to the community and offer counseling and support within the community because that doesn't exist. There's no support for um, this really, really bereft community, the townships, which are like, they are like the reservations, you know, in the reserves. Um, And in fact, during apartheid, the apartheid government went to Canada to consult with the Canadian government because the reserves had already been established. And so they got the, uh, the blueprint, the plan for how to divide and conquer and separate. Because bear in mind that the white population out here is seven to 8%. It's a minority and always has been. So, you know, all your listeners can just imagine the, you know, what that minority had to do to have supreme power in this country for all those decades. And um, yeah, and the violence they had to perpetrate to manage that uh, and the terror. So, um, so I thought, you know, uh, counseling and so that's what I went about. Uh, that's what I went about, Lifeline and Rape Crisis in the city. The director there had said, oh, wonderful. You know, you can join us. Uh, why don't you, you know, run your college out of Lifeline? That would be perfect. And so I would sit at my desk and really try hard to work on putting this program together. It's, it's, a, it's a registered program. So, you know, the the counselors would all get an accreditation, you know, so it was all all seemed really wonderful. And then uh, my dear friend Mags in Victoria had said to me, I know there are all the grannies 
who have buried their children and are looking after all their grandchildren and they're struggling. In those homes in the township where, as you know, there's no running water, no indoor plumbing, no baths and showers, there's just an outdoor tap and an outdoor toilet. So she said, if I send you money every month, you know, could you find a granny and just buy her monthly groceries? And I said, oh, absolutely. And so I had a contact in Slungsbreit and I asked her and she came with a whole list because, you know, bear in mind, uh, you know, I was, I mean, I was essentially this ignorant person who'd been gone for 25 years. And, you know, when I was growing up, when we were growing up, you know, white people didn't go to the townships, you know, it was deemed too dangerous. And, you know, to this day, you won't find many white people out in the township. And so I got this whole long list and I was shocked, you know, because I hadn't, hadn't dawned on me the whole concept of, remember the years of AIDS denialism and over 300,000 young working people, mothers and fathers died of AIDS-related illness because, you know, the President Tyborn Becky at the time uh, didn't believe in that HIV caused AIDS and wouldn't allow antiretrovirals into the country. So Doctors Without Borders, MSF, there were some rural clinics and those doctors were bringing ARVs into the country illegally because, you know, bear in mind that, you know, that HIV AIDS has, you know, it's been a predominantly heterosexual disease because of the migrant, the fractured families, the migrant labor, the moving population, you know, the men coming back from the mines to their wives and families, you know, bringing HIV, going back. So, uh, you know, so there are about 1.4 or 5 million so-called AIDS orphans and vulnerable children. And, you know, in the early days, there were children at Sunspray School who were dying of AIDS. You know, that's the horror of it. And, you know, it's all, it, it's all changed. ARVs are freely available. In fact, we have, you know, we, well, South Africa, especially KwaZulu-Natal is the epicenter for HIV AIDS in the world and tuberculosis. And has the, South Africa has the largest ARV program in the world as well. So, you know, so it's completely turned around. So I looked at this list and I thought, oh, oh my goodness. Well, and I wrote to all my friends in Canada and said, who would like to donate to food parcels? And so I got a huge response. So I found myself every month going and uh, shopping and, you know, filling these huge hampers with enough dry food and then, you know, whatever fresh fruit and vegetables, uh, we didn't buy any animal protein, fresh fruit and vegetables, uh, you know, they would last for as, as long as they would for these families. And they were all sibling headed households. They were all headed by the eldest sister who had had to sacrifice her education when her mom died to look after the family. And you know, and I was running around and doing this and running around in the community and having conversations and listening and learning. 
And then I had to suddenly confront myself and say, well, what about the counseling college? And then I went on this whole, you know, guilt trip until I had to remind myself that I the one, I was the one who said I had to do set up a counseling college. You know, so I, you know, I said, well, you know, you answer to nobody but yourself, you know, and I have to say, because it's so important. I, I had a, a, an Ethiopian friend in Victoria, Elias Chabud, who is late. He died, unfortunately. Uh, he, was a, he was a refugee. He fled from Ethiopia during the time when, when uh, students were being slaughtered. It was, I think, in the 80s. And uh, he found his way to Canada, learned to speak English, studied, eventually got his PhD, he was on faculty social work at University of Victoria. And I met him by chance and we sat and had these intense conversations. And one day, after telling me a few times, he eventually shouted at me and said to me, guilt is unproductive. It is a judgment. It's an evaluation of a feeling. It's not a true feeling. So whatever your underlying feeling is that you feeling guilty about is what you need to connect with. And as long as you walk around talking about your guilt, Carolyn, you are being, you're discriminating, you are judging, you are looking down on people and it's oppressive. Well, he had to tell me that a few times before it eventually sunk into me that um, that you know it was part of it was also just part of being white, right? Like white South Africans will still feel guilty and do nothing. So he said to me, "Look, just accept that you have privilege, and regardless, you know, white people all over the world have privilege." He said, "Use it for good." Because even though you're going to go back to South Africa and you, you know, and it's, there's, you know, it, there's a, a black government and the ANC is in power and you're a minority, you are still going to have privilege. And I thought, oh, really, not really. And he was right. He said, just use your privilege appropriately, ethically, morally to open doors and to make things happen. And so, you know, it's important that I, I share that and I'll forever be grateful to Elias who did manage to go back to Ethiopia and start doing his work. Yes, he did. And he had just, and he died, you know, very suddenly um, of natural causes. And um, so, yeah. And so, you know, I said to myself, well, because my, my therapist in Victoria, after I'd moved on from Ben, worked in depth psychology. So it was very Jungian. And we worked with dreams, worked with everything. And she would say to me, because I, you know, I, I had really come from a very dissociated self. She said, Karen, how you tune into your body is what makes you come alive. You know, notice that in your body. Um, notice what flattens you out, because I'm very good at dissociating. It's natural for me. So she said, notice. And so I started, you know, it's like, I started to own that that's where I'm alive. 
when I'm in the community, when I'm running around shopping, you know, I even you remember I had that um, the Turan, you know, as you would call a minivan over there. You know, I would just load up to the hilt and we would make these food parcels and and I loved every minute of it. So then I said, that's that's what makes you alive, being in the community. And then I realized that every family was bereft. And so I couldn't now start choosing other families to help. And um, because everybody needed food parcels. And so I spoke to the eldest siblings and I said, you know, what, what, what makes sense is, and I also realized that, you know, what I was doing was also serving myself, not realizing it, but serving myself, my need to help, my need to make things different, my family of origin issues around rescuing and saving, because that was my one of my big roles in my family, keeping the marriage together. And that I actually... Um, was, you know, I, I wasn't giving people the time and space and respect to have their own lives because, you know, the other thing that I was told very emphatically was life is unfair, life is cruel, and that everybody has a life. And no matter what you do, even if you're a millionaire, you can't change all those lives. So what you need to do is walk alongside, just partner with people, be there, listen, support, be curious, don't rescue. And I ultimately learned, I mean, you know, and, and this, you know, lots of these things, you know, just came to me like a bolt of lightning, is you white woman cannot go around this community to specific homes, you're doing more harm than good. Stop it. Because those people, families were being targeted, right? Because justifiably and obviously, other families who were struggling, you know, got jealous and, um, and became angry. They couldn't do anything to me, right? So I thought to myself, you know, nobody told me, like, you know, those families are not going to tell me you can't come here anymore. But suddenly it struck me. You can't do this. And, you know, and I approached Mr. Msormi at the school, um, the principal of Slonsbrook Primary School, and, you know, said, I'm able to get funds. I really want to work in the community. Um, you know, can I please work with the school? And you know, work alongside you all, improving and teaching, teaching and learning, you know, conditions and opportunities at the school. Uh, and so that's how I came to Transition. And I spoke to all those elder sisters and said, you know, what, what is most important is for us to offer you education, your siblings education. Can we shift over? And so they all agreed. And so all of those families with funds from Canada, we did. We offered education. In fact, we still have some of the little youngsters in uh, schools like Alexandra High, where you went. So the former white schools that are multiracial, post-apartheid, 
you know, getting a good quality education from Canadian sponsors. And that's how my work started at Songs Grade School. So it was contained at the school, those children, and then obviously involved the community because those students all have parents and family, etc. Such an interesting transition. Um, and what I really like is how you, you know, were in tune with the community, in tune with uh, what was happening, and were able to just adjust until you found your niche of impacting yeah. the community as a whole through the education, right? Which is yes. critical, right? That's how we all grow yeah. and can expand. Exactly. Um, it's very, right? yes. Isn't it? What, what are you focusing on now these days? What is your primary focus um, as you're getting back in there? Well, so it's, it's, so it's interesting because COVID has, COVID and my asthma and allergies that actually only developed upon my return to Peter Maritzburg and the toxic air here. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It didn't, yeah. didn't exist. I had no asthma when I lived in, uh, in the West Coast of Canada. It has kept me quite restricted. So I haven't gone back into the Slongsbreak community much. And so, but I meet with Mr. Mr. Msormi and, you know, we meet and discuss programs. But so I was completely isolated for a whole year. And then towards the end of last year, you'll remember Mrs. Pillay, the principal at Alexandra High. Yes. She contacted me and asked me if I would like to share the position of school counselor at Alexandra High. And I was really excited. And so that's what I'm doing. And so it's allowed me to shift from being, from being a project manager because you know I started the Okolapa uh, project at Slungsbreit School. It's revolved around Slungsbreit School. And from Slungsbreit School, Okolapa has provided to our sponsors in Canada uh, high school scholarships to Alexandra High for quite a number of years. In fact, there are still 12 students at Alexandra High. And I've just got to be really proud of our very first thing that you were talking about education. Girl child, our female student from Slung Spray who went to Alexandra High. She completed her Bachelor of Commerce three years in the required time. Not an easy degree. Yeah. No. And she got accepted. She's at the University of Johannesburg presently doing her honors program. And that uh, so that's the fourth year. That's what we have here is we have a fourth year. That's an honors program. That is a requirement before you go on to graduate school. So, you know, there she is. She took on all those commerce mathematics programs. So really, really proud of her. She's from Slungsbreak communities, the first girl child in the family to get educated, her older brothers are not. 
so yes, so Mr. Msormi comes to Alexandra High and we sit and have meetings and we discuss programs. But Slung, the programs at Slung Sprague, from you know what we were doing, uh, have really completed aside from the study abroads. Okay. So just this week. So Kari, remember Kari from I Johannesburg? Do. Yes. yes, who works for TCS Education Systems. She has just hosted the uh, virtual study abroad for the Chicago School. And um, so I interacted uh, with them on two occasions. And so, yes, so we're waiting for more of you to come out. We can't, I can't work with uh, University of KwaZulu-Natal Psychology Department either yet, which is what I did before, is hosted those master's psychology students at Flansbury School because of COVID and because, you know, those lockdown processes are still in place. But, you know, we're uh, poised to host more programs uh, out here. And so that I'll continue to do. And then I'm just absolutely thrilled. So along with Pam Matfield, who is retired school principal from Alexandra High, the two of us uh, share the counseling position. So uh, we offer counseling uh, to the students at Alexandra High. So there's full-time counseling team. Uh, Pam and I also um, offer guidance to the grade eights to for the whole year. So we're in the classroom, which is all distanced and open. So guidance is, is it just, you know, is a completely flexible subject and it's all about supporting the grade eights from primary to high school. Cause out here, our schools go to grade seven and then, you know, eight to 12 at high school. And so we support them right across the board. We also offer counseling for the staff at Alexandra High, um, and I've offered to be available for Zoom counseling. Uh, while, you know, while, while I'm while I'm off, we're just about to go into school break, the first break of this year, because our school year starts in January. So that's what I that's what I'm doing. So I'm sort that's of amazing. looking at evolution. Um, I have done a fair amount of hosting for TCSES. Was it must have been. 2018, I think just before your group came out, I was down in Cape Town hosting a group out of Washington, D.C. for uh, the Chicago School uh, because Kari was hosting up in Joburg. And so that group, that group another group was, was uh, going to come to Cape Town again with Dr. Lee from D.C., but that obviously got canceled as well. So, I, you know, so this has made me really excited and hopeful and curious about how things are unfolding for me. And it's just a broader way for me to uh, use my education and experience. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I love it, hearing that. Yes. I, yeah. I love hearing that. So how can, you know, as we, we, you know, round out the, the interview, which has been wonderful, Carolyn, thank you so much. Pleasure. Yes, uh, likewise. What can we do? I know that it's going to be a challenge uh, until things hopefully start to settle and we can get back out there and get some of these um, 
programs back up and running, what can we do? Um, what can our listeners do if they want to support your projects or support the students or, you know, the, the scholarships? I think the easiest thing is to email me. And I think, you know, the most current access for them for updates, although I'm a little behind, is to follow my Facebook page, so Carolyn Burns, um, because I've been, you know, I've been posting to that page and still need to post some up, updates about our students who've just graduated and the ones who are at university. So go to Carolyn Burns' Facebook page and, uh, and then, you, you know, people can send me messages via messenger if they like uh, and or just email me directly. Uh, carolyn at ogolapa.org.za uh, okay. and then we can we can discuss and then what I'll do is is channel that money either directly to Slung Spread School to whatever program Mr. Msormi and I might discuss but do you know I, I want to note and remember that Dr. Torres with your group brought five laptops out to the school and data projectors that are in use. That's amazing. The teachers, yes, the teachers are all, because I checked in with Mr. Msormi, so I want to note that in this uh, discussion. Uh, so Dr. Torres really launched them with those laptops. They're, they're working on them. And, uh, and I, so I also want to note that what both of your study abroad groups brought to the educators, right? In terms of the mentorship and programs. So, you know, whatever, uh, you, you know, your colleagues or listeners would like to donate to further those programs would be wonderful. Um, and then I would follow up with them with regard to what's unfolding. Since 20, we, so we, we did stop a scholarships to Alex uh, at the end of 2018 um, because I stopped traveling to Canada, to Victoria, which is where I went every year and did fundraising for the scholarships for the high school students. But that doesn't mean to say, you know, that if somebody would really like their funds to go to sponsor a, a student from Slung Spread School to Alexandra High, that we can't make that happen. Okay. You know, so, yeah. So, you know, no, I mean, nothing, nothing is limited. Everything is up for discussion. Amazing. Great. Yeah. So we'll make sure to link your email address and your Facebook Perfect. page to the okay. podcast information. Again, thank you, Carolyn. I appreciate it. pleasure. Taking, yes. Uh, I know you were taking uh, time out of your Friday evening to talk to me. Um, but such valuable information that I think so many of our listeners are going to appreciate. And I look forward um, to talking to you again in the future. Anything else that you want to uh, finish up the interview with or? No, I'd like to specifically uh, appreciate this conversation with you, uh, your superb uh, questions, your deep listening, your follow-up questions your interest, your warmth, and passion for your work, this work out here in South Africa, the impact of your visit out here. And 
my what I was able to share was actually co-created. It, it was because of what you brought to our time here. So I really, really appreciate that as well. And I'm delighted to see you and, um, and really hope that you encourage so many folks to come out with Dr. Torres and Giddy next time. Yes, we actually yes. are slated uh, to talk to some of our colleagues in, I believe it's July, about our experience. Perfect. And I'm very close to everyone that went to that trip. So I'm going to be, uh, I'll give them some updates. I'm excited to give them updates Perfect. about the technology and yes. what's going on. So thank you, Carolyn. Um, enjoy the rest of your evening. And there's no, there's one thing I have to mention to you, and you might already be aware of this. Mrs. Pelle at Alexandra High School asked, and your colleagues via Dr. Torres have been providing clips of relaxation, meditation. Did you know about that? Yes, I remember. Um, and there's another unit that we are uh, working on. Um, yes. Yes. And so, and so they're delighted at the school. I need to get feedback for Dr. Torres, but I wanted to mention that and, you know, and offer uh, deep gratitude and that when I'm back at Alexandra High, I'm going to be using those as well in sessions with the students, with oh, the grade eights, um, because the intention was for, for short clips to be part of the first 20 minutes of the check-in, sign-in, registration at Alexandra High, as well as um, Mrs. Pele and the staff are using some of those pieces in their staff meetings to, to end, to start and end the staff meetings so that folks can go into uh, relaxation. So, uh, yes, so I'm glad I, I remembered that at the last minute as well. So we're yeah. really, really appreciative. So there, you know, there are these deep connections. I am going to ask Mr. Msormi if he would like me uh, to send them over to the school as well. And he can offer them to the teachers. It's just, it's way easier to implement at Alexandra High, as you would imagine, just because of the structure, the Wi-Fi, etc. Yes. So thank you to you and your colleagues and all of those who've been out to South Africa or haven't and are supplying. I listen to them at night as well. Amazing. Wonderful. Thank so thank you, you so that. much. You're welcome. Such Enjoy a the pleasure rest. and give my best to everybody. I will. Thank you, Mrs. Burns. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to this edition of EdTech Hour. I'm Dr. Kelly Torres, the Department Chair of the Educational Psychology and Technology Program of the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. This podcast was completed through the support of our dedicated faculty, staff, and students. To learn more about the Educational Psychology Technology Program, or if you're interested in being on the EdTech Hour podcast, please reach out to me at ktorres at the chicagoschool.edu.